1: Presented by AT and T. Connecting
0: changes everything.
1: Hello, and welcome to Savor, production of iHeartRadio. I'm Annie Reese, and I'm Lauren
0: Volgabam. And today we have an episode for you about Melinda Russell.
1: Yes. Uh, was there any reason this person was on your mind, Lauren?
0: Uh well. Uh, it is Black History Month here in the United States, and I was looking for a relevant topic to that, and kind of going through some of these, you know, like 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 roundups of uh, biographies of cool humans of the past, and I had never heard of Ms. Melinda Russell, and her story really caught me, and so I wanted to talk about it.
1: I hadn't heard of her either, and it is a really amazing fascinating story
0: yeah
1: uh and also um you can find a lot of the stuff we're talking about unfortunately a lot of things about her life have been lost which we'll discuss but uh you can find the cookbook online for free uh that we're Mm going to discuss so Mm -hmm. there's stuff out there there's stuff out there oh yeah absolutely Mhm. Uh you can see our past biography
0: episodes for more. Mhm. Uh, maybe our past cookbook episodes and also episodes concerning ingredients and techniques from the American South which in, in which themes that we're going to talk about have come up
1: often. Yes. Yes. All right. So I guess that brings us to our question. I guess it does. Melinda Russell.
0: Who was she? Well, uh, Melinda Russell was a Black American who lived during the 1800s, was an accomplished cook and pastry chef, and wrote a cookbook, which, as far as we know, is the first one published by a Black woman in the United States ever her story was almost lost. And it's extraordinary because she was this relatively average person during her lifetime. You know, she she never knew fame. She had all kinds of odds stacked against her as a free Black woman in that time and place. But her, her very existence and, and the book that she wrote are now helping us change what we thought we knew or perhaps had assumed about cooking and cuisine by Black people in particular, around the American South in general, pre-emancipation and during the era of the Civil War, it was not just poverty cooking. People have been saying this forever, but it, but this is definitive evidence. Um, the culture was far more nuanced and complicated than that. It, it's like the finding of this book was like finding a new fossil that that gives you hard evidence about earlier life that that was previously poorly understood and kind of left to conjecture. Uh, her, her life and her work are just an absolute gift.
1: hmm Yeah.
0: More about Russell herself in the history section, but a bit about her book here. So, okay, she self-published a domestic cookbook containing a careful selection of useful receipts for the kitchen in 1866. It is a 39-page pamphlet, really, uh, that assumes the reader has a good handle on basic cookery and equipment of the time. Like Some of the recipes do include instructions, but many are more of like a list of amounts of ingredients. It includes about 265 recipes. She ran a pastry shop at one point, and indeed a lot of her recipes are for these fancy, uh, like, like Euro-American desserts, um, lemon meringue pie, cream puffs, trifles, Charlotte Russe, uh, wine gelatin, and all kinds of cookies, cakes, icings, custards, puddings, and pies. There are also lots of fancy preserves, like brandied peaches and uh, whole candied oranges in syrup. Other recipes feature local produce like gooseberries, tomatoes, mulberries, okra, and quince, uh, Yes, there is a recipe for tomato ketchup, just in case you were wondering. Uh, The few savory dishes are things you would have for like a nice dinner or tea at the time. Um, Calf's head soup, fricasseed catfish, uh, rare cooked spiced beef to be sliced thin and served cold, a spiced onion custard, nice and creamy, yeah, Um, a white meat chicken salad with celery and mustard, There is also a section in the back with basic recipes for things like ice cream or ginger beer, plus non-edibles like cologne, and some like home and or folk remedies for various ailments like uh, burns and toothaches. The cologne, by the way, and and I I can't remember if I've mentioned this on the show before, but I am a perfume nerd. I got really into Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab a number of years ago, and yes, I have too many perfumes. Um, But okay, so the cologne sounds really nice. Um, It has rosemary, lemon, bergamot, lavender, cinnamon, clove and rose.
1: Oh, that does sound lovely.
0: Right? Mm. Mhm. Huh. <laughs> um anyway, we are ostensibly a food show. <laughs>
1: ostensibly. <laughs> uh, well, what about the nutrition? Don't eat history. Consume it for your brain. Up oh, here. there you go. There you go. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have one solitary number for you.
0: Oh, we do. Um as far as we know, there is a single copy of this cookbook remaining on this, our planet Earth.
1: Which is wild. That is. Whew. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's quite the story how how it was recovered, how this history was rediscovered. I was not expecting it when I was doing this research.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I really <laughs> fell in love with it. Um, uh, and, okay, so we are going to get into that history and a little bit about uh, Melinda Russell's life. But first, we are going to get into a quick break for a word from our sponsors.
1: This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies.
3: At Edu,
1: And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. So, as I mentioned, um, unfortunately, a lot of Melinda Russell's story has been lost due to a number of factors. And a lot of what we do know is based on the very short bio um, at the front of her cookbook that historians have pieced together and/or speculated on to make an educated guess in some instances. Mm-hmm. There are people looking into this, and we will talk about that, um, yeah. but at the time of when this cookbook was published, when Melinda Russell was alive, a lot of record keeping, especially when it comes to black people, was haphazard at best and just not done or erased at worst. Mm-hmm. So we got to move with what we have yep. here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, all right. But in this foreword, in the cookbook, Russell says that she was born and raised in eastern Tennessee there's no date given, but it was probably around 1812. Um, her mother's name was Karen, who was born after Russell's grandmother had been freed from enslavement. Her mother died when Russell was quite young. Um, in her late teens, Russell joined a group of folks intending to go to Liberia.
0: Yeah, uh, Liberia at the time was an American colony of freed African-Americans and Afro-Caribbeans, hoping to find like more complete personal freedom and, and opportunity.
1: Right. Um, But after one of the members of their party robbed Russell, she was forced to abandon that plan and instead became a lady's companion and cook. I even read nurse uh, somewhere um, in Lynchburg, Virginia. She went on to marry a man named Anderson Vaughn, uh, and they had a son together. Only four years later, Vaughn died, leaving Russell to take care of their child while she was running a laundry at the time. And I wanted to read this because she has such a voice.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. She she included this in in that same foreword for this cookbook.
1: She did. She did. And it was uh, what she said was an advertisement for her wash house. Uh, quote, Melinda Vaughn, fashionable laundress. Would respectfully inform the ladies and gentlemen of Agwindon that she is prepared to wash and iron every description of clothing in the neatest and most satisfactory manner. Every article washed by her, she guarantees, shall pass unscathed through the severest ordeal of inspection <laughs> without the remotest danger of condemnation. <laughs> That's beautiful. That's it so is. good. <laughs> It is, oh, gosh.
0: Um uh, a little bit later she she took back her her maiden name and uh, also worked as a cook for families around Tennessee, North Carolina, and Kentucky.
1: right. And eventually she went on to run a boarding house and then later a pastry shop in Tennessee. And yeah, remember, this was a time when many black people in the southern U.S. were enslaved and the civil rights of black people were not recognized by law in the United States. And she was a single mother running a business and raising a child with a disability in this atmosphere.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, Over the course of six years, Russell managed to save up some money, uh, through her pastry shop and made enough to provide for her and her son, but in 1864 she was robbed and threatened with violence and death if she reported the robber. So she packed up her son and her life and moved to Pawpaw, Michigan, though she hoped to return to Tennessee one day when things were more peaceful in Tennessee. So this is kind of where a lot of things get a little blurry because we just have this thing that she wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, but after enough time had passed, Russell wanted to return back to Tennessee, but by then was kind of, quote, getting on a bit in years. So she, she needed a different way to make money other than cooking, kind of that physicality of cooking. So she thought of her years of experience in that world of cooking, though, and, and of how people enjoyed what she made and how they asked After her recipes, and she got this idea to put together a cookbook. So, Russell self-published a domestic cookbook containing a careful selection of useful receipts for the kitchen in Paw in 1866. And part of the reason she published it was, yes, this fundraising tool so that she could get enough money to go back to Tennessee in the opening short history of the book, she gives, yeah, this, like, biography, but she also specifically points out sources she learned from, including Mary Randolph's cookbook, The Virginia Housewife, but also a Black cook named Fanny Stewart. And that was a role that was often forgotten, unappreciated, or erased. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she she did something very unique there in making sure to call that out. Um she also establishes her expertise, writing that she had been in the business of cooking for over twenty years and I loved that she was like trust me, people want mm-hmm. my recipes <laughs> uh-huh uh, and <laughs> here's a quote uh, to, to underline that point from the opening. I know my receipts to be good, as they always have given satisfaction. I have been advised to have my receipts published, as they are valuable and every family has use for them. Being compelled to leave the South on account of my union principles in the time of the rebellion and having been robbed of all my hard-earned wages, which I had saved, and as I am now advanced in my years with no other means of support than my own labor, I have put out this book with the intention of benefiting the public as well as myself." Hmm. I love it Mm -hmm. it. but yeah I couldn't find much around what happened after she published the book Um, she does have another line that I really liked where she was like I know everybody who knows me is gonna want to buy it (laughs) Uh, who's tasted my food basically is gonna want to buy it yeah but I couldn't find much about what happened after but as I said uh, others that are more experienced and I think it's also important to call them out the people who are doing the work of kind of uncovering these things. Yeah, yeah. are digging into it. Cuz
0: it's not just you. It's that currently as as far as we could find out, um the information does not exist. It has it has exactly. been lost. And but but people are working on it.
1: People are working on it. And in fact, this cookbook uh was almost lost to time as well. Um Soon after Russell left Paw, the town burned in a fire, and it, lim- it eliminated almost any scrap of history of her time there. And up until the early 2000s, the 1881 cookbook, What Mrs. Fisher Knows About Old Southern Cooking, was believed to be the first cookbook by an African-American woman. Um... But in the early 2000s, an antique cookbook collector and then curator of American culinary history at the William L. Clements Library at the University of Michigan, named Jan Ligoni, got her hands on Russell's work. It was this whole thing. <laughs> hmm hmm Yeah. Um, like, it
0: was found by a bookseller at the bottom of a box from the collection of uh, one Ellen Evans-Brown, who was the chef and cookbook writer who helped pioneer fresh California cuisine in the 1950s and collected a great number of culinary
1: materials. Yeah, and this discovery completely upended a lot of the mainstream thought around Black cuisine in the U.S. and Southern cuisine, uh, sometimes called soul food in this context as well. Um It suggested that a more nuanced take on this history was missing and was needed. Mm -hmm. Um, Here's a quote from journalist Tony Tipton Martin, who spent over a decade researching the history of African-American women cooks. Um, Quote, In isolation, Melinda's book might appear to be an aberration, but it dispels the notion of a universal African-American food experience, which is why the term soul food doesn't work for so many of us. And just a to note, uh, Tony Tipton Martin went on to write the Jemima Code, two centuries of African American cookbooks. So she's done a lot of amazing work. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the story of Longoni tracking down Russell is really fascinating. Uh, she and her husband, who was a chemistry professor, they had this whole like oh. Indiana Jones <laughs> thing going on. That mm-hmm. they were so determined to track down this story. Uh, They dug through newspapers, census reports, genealogies. They went to cemeteries and town halls all across the South, including on, like, a wedding anniversary. Like, they were really—it was a big thing for them. Lingoni published a facsimile of Russell's book in 2007.
0: Yes, uh, and copies of both that and the original are online. Um, but but that that original book now lives at Clements Library, uh, specifically in the culinary archive named for Longoni. Uh, it's thought it's thought to be right the only existing copy. That culinary archive, by the way, is based on Longoni's personal collection, which contained some twenty five thousand items at the time of her death in twenty twenty two. Uh, And it has some exhibits online. So go check out the Janice Bluestein longoni Culinary Archive. It's pretty rad.
1: Definitely. Definitely. And this discovery really inspired a lot of people. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It was really important to a lot of people. In 2020, Shireen Sherrard published a book of poetry around themes inspired by Russell's life and recipes called Grimoire. Um, And then in 2021 a group of culinary historians came together to form the Melinda Russell Recipe Testing Project with the goal of testing the recipes and making them more accessible for our modern kitchens and understanding of recipes. Because as you said, Lauren, a lot of them kind of assume you know certain things.
0: Yeah, yeah. Or that you have access to certain equipment or that
1: you understand what their weird measures are talking about. One of my favorites was, uh, I think one of them was like a one-sentence recipe. (laughs) Yeah. And it was like, (laughs) And it's been fun to read. I was just kind of perusing through uh, kind of the blog post. People were writing about recreating the recipes, and it was fun to see them be like, one (laughs) sentence recipe, what is this? (laughs) They figured it out, you know? I love it. Yeah, Yeah, um, as as we said, you can find this uh, cookbook for free online, and there has been a lot written about it. And a lot of really amazing um, conversations about it. So if yeah. you want to look any of that up, you can find it. It is available.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But but that is uh, uh, kind of unfortunately all that we really have to say about Melinda Russell for now.
1: It is. Uh, however, we do have some listener mail for
0: you all. We do. And we are going to get into that as soon as we get back from one more quick break for a word from our sponsors.
3: at purdueglobal.edu
1: And we're back. Thank you, Sponsor. Yes, thank you. And we're back with Listener listener. (laughs) Mail It's like finding an amazing manuscript and you're like (gasps) Yeah Yeah. I feel like it's (laughs) also just a little bit Scooby-Doo but yeah Yeah (laughs) Well, Scooby-Doo also has discovered many amazing things. It's true. Um, It's true. Yeah. (laughs) So there's an intersection there to be had. Sheldon wrote, um, this memory is from back in the 60s when I was a teen. My grandmother, who was born in Ireland in the early 1890s, was living with us. She had gone shopping at some specialty shop one day and came back with a bottle of Lyle's golden syrup. Hmm. She showed it to all of us and told us that she used to always get it back home, but had been unable to find it until that day. Since then, there was always a bottle of it in her house. You brought back memories of my long-gone grandmother. fix. Thanks. In the picture below, you'll see that I have an old jar that I've been using to hold my cinnamon sugar mix for my cinnamon rolls. And while I'm talking to you, it looks like the St. Albert's Curd Festival has been moved from summer to winter. And you've missed this year's <laughs> event. You should start planning for your road trip next year. I'm still planning on bringing you some Montreal bagels when you come up here. <laughs> I mean, yeah, curds yeah. and bagels.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, that's our bad for not keeping better track of the Curd Festival.
1: Um, yeah, what are we doing?
0: Yeah. No, not eating curds
1: is the thing. Yeah, that's that's our punishment.
0: Yep. Um. <laughs> yep. <Yep-ers. laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, but how wonderful.
1: Yeah, that's I love that so much, and I love... I do that, too, uh, where I'll keep containers and use them for other things. Oh, yeah. Um, but then you get the the memory of, like, where that was from, the container was from. Yeah, um, sure. Yeah, so <laughs> cool. I love that. And that container, as we talked about in that episode for Lyle's Golden Syrup, it's pretty cool.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And right, you know, and all of which makes me feel better about my uh, wild <laughs> habit of just saving containers that i possibly don't need to save. Um, Which brings us to uh, Christine, who wrote, I was so intrigued after listening to your recent episode on tapache. I had never heard of such a thing and simply had to try it. So I launched into my science experiment last Sunday. I read a few recipes and ended up using brown sugar. It turned out fine, but next time I'll take a trip to the Mexican grocery store for the real deal, pioncillo. After four days living in a pot on my counter." Not to mention the interesting comments from my family about my witch's brew. I sprained it and placed it into the fancy swing-top bottles I saved from the French soda I bought at World Market. I just couldn't throw them away. I have a problem with saving jars and bottles, but that's another story. It was so good. I added tequila and lime, and it was like a fancy margarita with an extra pop of funky on the finish thank you for inspiring my fun activity and tasty new cocktail. I have to admit I heard Lauren's voice in my head saying bacteria poop throughout the process. Love the show and love the fun delivery on interesting topics from you both every week. Oh, and thank you most of all for giving me the justification for saving the bottles. I was able to deliver a satisfying, see, I told you I would use them for something, to my husband. You are quite welcome. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> Anytime. But, From one but, person with a problem to you, I'm glad that we gave you a solution.
1: <laughs> oh, me too. Me too. And space is a premium in my my place. And oh, I, yeah. I'm just like, well, I can't get rid of any of these things, though. Yeah, I might need them for some I something. might,
0: right? <laughs> this could be useful.
1: Yes. My county please. doesn't even do glass recycling. That, yeah. Also true. Also true. Christine also sent pictures, and uh, it looks delicious. Your science experiment concoction cocktail. Hmm. Um, I'm very, I'm determined to do it, uh, and I think I'm. You've inspired me. You've oh. inspired me. <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs> I, it looked so good, and I'm so <laughs> glad that it worked out, <laughs> and that you got a nice I told you so moment out of it, <laughs> and a bacteria poop <laughs> moment out of it. That's Yeah. Great.
0: <laughs> eh, that's, that's a that's that's a bingo right there, I think. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it
1: is. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, thank you so much to both of these listeners for writing in. If you would like to write to us, you can. Our email is hello at saverpod.com. We're also on social media. You can find us on
0: Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at saverpod. And we do hope to hear from you. Saver is production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks, as always, to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard. Thanks to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way.
1: This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies.